Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm a writer. And I'm Terry, and I'm a first grade teacher. And this is our podcast, Reading During Recess. And today, we will be talking about Natalie Babbitt's children's novel, Tuck Everlasting. Yes, this is one of my favorite children's books of all times. I love it so much. I think I love it even more now as an adult than I did as a kid. So I am so glad you suggested this because I had never read this book before. And I, I mean, in fairness, it is short, um, but I read it in like hours. I had so much fun with it. Yeah, I, I basically reread it all in one sitting. It's just so tightly paced and every chapter is short and something important happens. Natalie Babbitt doesn't sacrifice anything in terms of description or imagery, you know, yes. in the service of the plot. It's just lovely. We're giving too much away, guys. We got to give you that summary first yes. before we get so jazzed about it. So Tuck Everlasting takes place in a town called Tree Gap, which is a fictional town in rural America, and it takes place in the late 1800s. And it's about an 11-year-old girl named Winnie Foster, who lives with her family and feels very confined by them. They're a bit stifling. And one day she, kind of thinking that she might run away, decides to explore the nearby wood that her family owns, and she comes across a 17-year-old boy drinking from a spring and is just immediately attracted to him. We'll get more into that. <laughs> the boy introduces himself as Jesse Tuck and tells her that he is actually 104 years old and insists that she not drink the spring water. Jesse's mother, whose name is May, and his older brother, whose name is Miles, reluctantly kidnap Winnie because they realize that they have to get her alone so that they can tell her their family secret. And the family secret has something to do with that spring water. And this kidnapping is witnessed by a mysterious man in a yellow suit who had showed up earlier at Winnie's parents' house, and he'd expressed some interest in the Foster's land and said that he was looking for someone. And so he sees the Tucks riding away with the kidnapped Winnie. Back at their isolated cabin, the Tucks explain to Winnie that the spring water grants the drinker eternal life and basically freezes them in time at the point in which mm -hmm. they drink from it. They have not aged. Right, yeah. So they've been unable to age or die for over 80 years. They want to keep this spring water a secret because... Obviously, the ramifications of magic water that makes people live forever would could potentially be very damaging to humanity. Yes, they have a image of people just storming the woods and and guzzling it all up. Yes, very bad. The father, the patriarch of the family, whose name is Angus Tuck, but is generally just referred to as Tuck. He refers to the secret getting out as it being like pigs coming to slop. And so Winnie winds up spending two nights with the Tucks. They promise that they will return her to her family after they have explained the secret. And she really starts to grow to care for them and, um, and their simple way of life. And then they return to the house after going out in the boat and find that the Tucks horse is stolen. And it's soon revealed why the man in the yellow suit shows back up and reveals his intentions. Uh, he had actually learned about the tucks as a young child from a story told on his grandmother's knee about um, this immortal family. And he's actually been searching for them for many, many years and, uh, and has just purchased the wood from the Fosters in exchange for Winnie's return because he knows where she is. 
and he intends to sell the water and says that he's going to have Winnie drink it and use her as a demonstration of its powers because, of course, then she won't be able to die. Nothing that would kill a normal person will be able to kill her. Of course, the Tucks are absolutely horrified. Yes, so May Tuck, who's a very protective and kind of kind and gruff lady, unintentionally kills the man in the yellow suit um, by hitting him over the head with the family's shotgun in an effort to protect Winnie because he's literally physically grabbed Winnie and is taking her away. And the killing is witnessed by the town constable who brings Winnie home and then takes May to the town jail to await hanging. And the Tuck family knows that this is a disaster because obviously May cannot die. And so this would expose the family's secret. So the rest of the Tucks enlist Winnie for her help. And so she offers to take the place of May in the jail cell so that the constable won't be able to tell that May has escaped. And before Not a very bright man. No, he's not. Uh, it works. She is successful. She takes May's place in the jail cell and the family is reunited. And then obviously the Tucks are going to flee Tree Gap because they are now fugitives. And before they leave, Jesse gives Winnie a bottle of the, the magic spring water and asks her to wait six years until she's 17, his age, uh, and then to drink it and join him and his family. Obviously, wow, what do you do when you are <laughs> 11 and you are handed the possibility of immortality by the cutest boy you've ever seen? So Winnie considers it, and ultimately what she does is she pours the water out onto a toad who she's been sort of following or who has been following her throughout the novel. We've seen it pop up a couple of times, and she tells herself that, of course, if she changes her mind, she can always return to the wood. And then in the epilogue, many years later, May and Angus return to the now suburban town of Tree Gap, and the wood has been completely bulldozed and the spring is gone. And they find Winnie's gravestone in a nearby cemetery and learn that she had gone on to marry and have children before dying just two years prior. So Angus feels a secret relief that Winnie didn't drink the water and instead chose to live a full, natural life. Out of all of the family members, Angus seems to be the most adamant that no one ever drink the water. Mm -hmm. But he and May do acknowledge that Jesse is going to be disappointed. I mean, it's been a while. It's... He probably knows. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then as they are leaving Tree Gap, May and Angus uh, narrowly avoid running over a toad who they place on the side of the road and comment that it must have some kind of death wish, unaware that it is that same toad who Winnie had given the water to years before. So do you want to tell us a little bit about who Natalie Babbitt is or what? I most certainly would. Natalie Babbitt was born in 1932 and is a writer, or was a writer and illustrator from Ohio. Uh, she published her first children's book, it was a picture book, called The 49th Magician in 1966, along with her husband. Then she went on mostly to write novels rather than picture books, and she actually got a Newbery honor for Knee Knock Rise, terrific name, no idea, no clue what it's about, in 1971. But, of course, her best-known work is Tuck Everlasting, which was published in 1975 and was actually ranked 16th of the top 100 chapter books of all time in 2012 and has been ad adapted into two movies. Yes. She wrote 20 children's books in her life, including The Eyes of the Amaryllis, 
which is another one of my absolute favorite books. Nellie, A Cat on Her Own, and The Moon Over High Street. And in 2012, Babbitt was awarded the inaugural E.B. White Award for Achievement in Children's Literature by the American Academy of Arts and Letters. And she unfortunately died in 2016 at her Connecticut home. We miss you, Natalie. We do. She actually also, something that I only recently found out is that she is a lovely illustrator and that she illustrated the kind of famous cover of Tuck Everlasting of the little red house on the lake. Yes. And when we say we realized that, we realized it literally just now. Yeah. (laughs) If you have a copy, go find it. Flip it over. Cover art, 1975 by Natalie Babbitt. Yes, it's beautiful. It's truly lovely. So... One of the things that makes this book so special is the language, and that's one reason I think why it continues to have such a a hold over adults as well as children is because there's really sophisticated storytelling techniques that are going on, Mm -hmm. some of which I think can even be best appreciated by an adult audience or a teenage audience. I was listening to an NPR interview that Natalie Babbitt did a few years before her death, And at one point in the interview, she said that Tuck Everlasting isn't entirely a kid's book. And I would kind of agree with that. I feel like other classics, like The Hobbit, for example, it kind of transcends audience and it can Mm -hmm. be accessible to children. But I also think that if you're an adult, go and pick up your copy of Tuck Everlasting and read it because it's it's lovely. So I wanted to kind of give you guys a taste of some of this language and also a sense of how the story is set into motion. And I think that this book begins with one of the greatest first pages in like the history of children's literature. I love this prologue so much. And so Terry is going to read it for us in its entirety. It's about a page long. The first week of August hangs at the very top of summer, the top of the live long year, like the highest seat of a Ferris wheel when it pauses in its turning. The weeks that come before are only a climb from balmy spring, and those that follow a drop to the chill of autumn. But the first week of August is motionless and hot. It is curiously silent, too, with blank white dawns and glaring noons and sunsets smeared with too much color. Often at night there is lightning, but it quivers all alone. There is no thunder, no relieving rain. There are strange and breathless days, the dog days, when people are led to do things they are sure to be sorry for after. One day at that time, not so very long ago, three things happened, and at first there appeared to be no connection between them. At dawn, May Tuck set out on her horse for the wood at the edge of the village of Tree Gap. She was going there, as she did once every ten years, to meet her two sons, Miles and Jesse. At noontime, Winnie Foster, whose family owned the Tree Gap wood, lost her patience at last and decided to think about running away. And at sunset, a stranger appeared at the Foster's gate. He was looking for someone, but he didn't say who. No connection, you would agree. But things can come together in strange ways. The wood was at the center, the hub of the wheel. All wheels must have a hub. A Ferris wheel has one, as the sun is the hub of the wheeling calendar. Fixed points they are, and best left undisturbed, for without them nothing holds together. But sometimes people find this out too late. I love how ominous and foreboding that introduction is. Yes. 
And the way that it introduces that central metaphor of the wheel, which comes yes. up again oh, and amazing. again. The frozen notion of August as being this uh, fixed point in time, you know, that the tucks live in some sort of perpetual August. Gosh, and it just, I mean, you have to read the rest of the book, you know, I mean, you, you read the, you read the prologue and I mean, think about, you know, (laughs) most chapters are a natural stopping point, but I read the prologue and I was like, oh, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) I, I better clear my next couple hours. Yes, I love that. So something that makes this book really lovely, too, is the use of the third person omniscient narrator and the sense that this is this is a voice, this kind of disembodied voice that knows something, that knows a story that is so interesting and that you want to know Ooh, more yes. about. Oh, I love that. Ugh. And the introduction of the creepy man in the yellow suit just right off the bat. Can I just say that I did not, I mean, I think because the man in the yellow suit gets introduced a little bit more later when when he actually meets him, but I had originally believed before reading the book that Tuck Everlasting was primarily a love story about a boy named Tuck and this girl, and when we hear about the man in the yellow suit, I thought that was Tuck. Oh no. I was like, ugh. (laughs) It was like, gosh. Oh my god, ew. Much to my relief, not the case. Yeah, I think that your misperception of the plot of this book is probably a pretty common one, which is a result of the 2002 Disney movie Tuck Everlasting, which we'll get into later because I have um, some strong feelings about that movie and they are not positive. So (laughs) in the NPR interview with Natalie Babbitt that I mentioned earlier, the interviewer asks her why she thinks this book has had such staying power. And one of the things that she mentions is that she gives a lot of credit to teachers because she thinks that teachers read the book and really liked it and then assigned it to their students over the years, uh, which is a lovely shout out to teachers. Shout out to Terry, who is a teacher. Woohoo! And that's actually the first place where I encountered this book, too. I read it in my fourth grade class. I think one of the things that makes this book so amazing is that it's a great way to teach kids about different literary techniques. Like the use of figurative language, this book is full of beautiful metaphors and simile and imagery and foreshadowing like for example on page six page six actually has one of my favorite descriptions in the whole book so i'm just gonna share it one of the things that jumped out to me about this book that we actually talked a little bit about when reading matilda too was that the use of the the word choice is pretty advanced for a children's book in some places and So, for example, she spends the first part of chapter one describing kind of in depth how this village came to be and how there's this one central road that runs through Tree Gap and how it was eventually how it was initially carved by cows. It was like a cow path that they made and then it became a road that people began to use. And so she begins with kind of this meandering description that's a little bit unusual, I think, for a children's book because it's a very scene setting and kind of literary and slow move Mm -hmm. you know instead of introducing a character right away she introduces place and that makes sense because place is such an important part of this book when she is describing tree gap she says and all at once the sun was uncomfortably hot the dust oppressive and the meager grass along its edges somewhat ragged and forlorn so just like to pause there 
in that one sentence, we have oppressive, meager, and forlorn, which are all like pretty advanced words, I think, for mm-hmm. a book that you might read with third or fourth graders. And then she goes on to say, on the left stood the first house, a square and solid cottage with a touch-me-not appearance, surrounded by grass cut painfully to the quick and enclosed by a capable iron fence, some four feet high, which clearly said, move on, we don't want you here. So the road went humbly by and made its way past cottages more and more frequent, but less and less forbidding, into the village. But the village doesn't matter, except for the jailhouse and the gallows. The first house only is important. The first house, the road, and the wood. And so that immediately, like, basically sets the stage for the entire book, right? And we know right away that that jailhouse and that gallows are going to come back in the third act. And I also just love the description of the house as touch me not and the grass cut painfully to the quick. Oh, I loved that part. I was hoping you would say something. (sighs) What a great phrase, you know? Mm -hmm. And And the idea of the road as being this humble, meandering being. Yes, it's just everything about this book is so beautiful and... Like I mentioned before, I'm a writer and I write in multiple genres. And one thing that is always kind of stable throughout my work is that I focus a lot on place. I give a lot of time to um, to setting descriptions and I'm really interested in writing about the politics of place and who gets to describe a place and what does it mean to get to describe or to claim or to have ownership of a place? And that is such a central concern for Tuck Everlasting that like while I was reading this book, I was realizing that this was actually probably like a pretty foundational text for me as a reader and as a writer. And I, I didn't even really realize it. What a treat for you to get to to reread and recognize that. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Natalie. So one of the techniques that Natalie Babbitt is able to use so effectively in this novel is characterization. She creates such memorable and distinct characters, which I think is really impressive given how brief this novel is. I mean, most of the chapters Mm -hmm. are less than 10 pages. Many of them are less than five. And the book in total is only 139 pages. And so there's a real concise quality to it, but she's able to establish these characters so definitively. Like, for example, May, who is the matriarch of the Tuck family, is described as a great potato of a woman with a round, (laughs) sensible face and calm, bright eyes. And then contrasting with that, the man in the yellow suit is... He was remarkably tall and narrow, the stranger standing there. His long chin faded off into a thin, apologetic beard, but his suit was a jaunty yellow that seemed to glow a little in the fading light. And remember, I thought that was Tuck, so I was um, Tuck, the love interest in this book. I was deeply unhappy. Yeah, you don't really want your your love interest to be described as having a thin, apologetic beard. (laughs) Wow, what a word. I loved it. (laughs) Yes. He also is described later as, oh, this is one of my favorite descriptions in the whole book. He laughed, gesturing with self-deprecation with long, thin fingers. His tall body moved continuously. A foot tapped, a shoulder twitched, and it moved in angles rather jerkily. But at the same time, he had a kind of grace, like a well-handled marionette, which is just such a creepy image. You know, I mm. mean, like puppets are inherently creepy. Sorry to any puppeteers who are listening. 
and marionettes, I think, are particularly unsettling. And so this description of this man who ends up being a villain, you know, as this, this has this body that moves in these kind of unsettling, jerky, jerky yes, almost like uncanny not valley kind of. Yeah, yeah, uncanny valley. Yeah, it's just so creepy. And, and at this point, he also, he's talking to Winnie. This is the first interaction Winnie has with the man in the yellow suit. He's talking to her through her fence. And she's alone. There's no adults around. And that is, like, also particularly creepy. Yes. Um, Very stranger danger air of mystery around this unnamed man. And he stays, um, I believe he stays unnamed. Yeah. He is only ever the man in the yellow suit. A lot of people have written a lot or questioned a lot about what, what is the symbolism of him wearing the yellow suit. You know, obviously yellow is a color that signifies danger like a Mm -hmm. yellow light you're supposed to slow down or like yellow can also be a synonym for cowardly oh yeah sort of jaundiced like sallow kind of yeah and also like just a guy in a yellow suit is just like not a great image yeah you're like why are you on my property (laughs) (laughs) oh well-dressed banana get out of here um we need to bring back heckling. <laughs> and we need to throw rocks at the men in yellow suits who stand on our property. Yeah, and talk to our 11-year-old kids. Get them out of here. <laughs> yeah. Natalie Babbitt gave a speech a few decades ago, like a talk really about um, about children's literature. And one of the things that the talk discussed was symbolism and also like how the author's intentions in a novel are not always the same as what gets interpreted. She said she talked about the man in the yellow suit because it's kind of presented as something that I think pretty obviously lends itself to being symbolism. She said, for instance, people sometimes look at me narrowly and say, all right, come clean. What is the actual meaning of the fact that the villain in Tuck Everlasting wears a yellow suit? (laughs) You're saying he's a coward, right? Now, it's true that the word yellow suggests a number of things, some disagreeable and some not, but that's not why I chose it. I chose it simply because I needed a two-syllable color, and purple was out of the question. I had to have a two-syllable color because the phrase, man in the yellow suit, is repeated quite often and needed the rhythm that two syllables gives. It makes much better music with yellow than it would with black or gray. And in addition, in those days, and even now in the summer, men do sometimes wear cream-colored yellowish suits, but they never wear purple, not if they have any sense. Wow, what a writer! Yeah. I mean, what a terrific reason. And as soon as you hear it, you're like, my God, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the number of times we'll say the man in the yellow suit just in this episode alone. Right. Yeah, and the man in the green suit, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It's true. It doesn't have the flow. That's something that I think is really interesting, especially as a writer. Sometimes when I share my work with other people, they'll ask me very like specific questions about why I chose a particular word or a particular description. And the answer is that a lot of that stuff happens at kind of the the sound level or the musical level, mm-hmm. even sometimes more so than um, with a deeper analytical meaning. And sometimes when you write with the intention of like putting a symbol in the text, it just hits you over the head with it so hard that it's so obvious that it's not appealing. Downright garish. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit, I guess, or I wanted to ask you, Terry. So like I've said, I've read this book many times, but this was Terry's first time reading it. And so I just kind of wanted to hear from you what you found most interesting or surprising. So again, I was surprised um, primarily because I thought, like Sarah said, I was led astray by the movie posters I had seen. And I thought it was going to be a love story more than anything else. It is not. It's a truly terrific examination of humanity's place in um, the universe and that of all living things. But I think one of the things that I really loved, and we'll talk more about this, is, again, just the imagery. It's such a beautifully written book. It's one of those books where it makes you it makes you really ache for, for summer and to be somewhere that looks just like this. And where it really made me want to go was, um, Sarah, your family's farm, yeah. the beautiful property in Markham, Virginia, mm-hmm. because it just has that, um, the book captures that tranquility and slow-moving, almost frozen mm, nature so beautifully. Yeah, and... I agree. There's one description of the woods in particular. Let me find it. The wood was full of light, entirely different from the light she was used to. It was green and amber and alive, quivering in splotches on the padded ground, fanning into sturdy stripes between the tree and trunks. There were little flowers she did not recognize, white and palest blue and endless tangled vines, and here and there a fallen log half-rotted but soft with patches of sweet green velvet moss. And there were creatures everywhere. The air fairly hummed with their daybreak activity. She goes on and on and on. It's hard to even know where to stop reading an excerpt because every mm-hmm. single sentence Everything, yeah. is just followed by an even more beautiful sentence. And you're like, I could continue. <laughs> and it's the littlest things. I mean, this is kind of silly, you know, I don't, but like there are so many little parts that really stick out to you just in the way that she, the way she writes is so beautiful and feels very um, feels very personal in that, as I said, like you feel like you've seen these things before. You're like, oh, exactly. It's exactly like that. And this was just one little thing that I just kept rereading. It's the second she's out in the canoe with Miles Tuck. They're going fishing and uh, she's looking around and seeing the different early morning animals. And on page 82 and from the bank, something plopped into the water, a frog. Winnie caught just a glimpse of it as it scissored away from shore. And I loved that. I love as soon as she said scissored away from shore, I I saw it. I saw mm-hmm. the frog, you know, I was so it was just perfect. And that, I think, was the moment that I was very strongly like, I, I want it to be summer and I want to see a frog and I need it to happen right now. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. One of, at another point, she says that um, she's describing the way that the way that the sunset looks reflected on the pond and she says that it's double trembled on the surface of the pond like color spilled from a paint box oh and and later she says that the sun is like a soft red sliding egg yolk i just can't i can't handle it metaphors and the similes they're just so beautiful um but they never they never feel overdone Mm -hmm. you know they never feel overplayed you're yes they just they flow so naturally and everything works it all works yeah and i think what makes it work is that the plot is so interesting because Mm -hmm. even like the most beautiful language in the world is going to be boring if nothing happens 
And especially kids are going to lose interest very quickly if nothing interesting happens. And so one of the things that, about this book that I thought was super interesting was the way that it made me think like this book almost more than any other book I read as a kid like made me have deep philosophical thoughts (laughs) about like what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead and what the circle of life really means um what the metaphor like that we get introduced at the beginning of the book is that life is like a wheel and that the tux angus tux explains this to Winnie by saying that the tucks have fallen off of this wheel. That they are outside the natural progression of life mm-hmm. as we know it. And um, it's such an isolating image, mm-hmm. you know? This notion of immortality as being something that is so unnatural. Right, and it prevents them from being able to settle down in one place for too long, to be able to form meaningful connections with other people. And also, it's hard to make meaning in a life that has, that doesn't have mm-hmm. that essential limitation. Exactly. Um, and that's one of the, um, Miles talks a lot about that. Mm-hmm. His, his feeling that he would, that he believes, hopefully, that there is something meaningful he can do. And, and so this book, I don't know, it just made me think a lot when I was a kid about, like, would I drink the water? Because... As an adult, the choice obviously seems obvious that you wouldn't want to live forever. But kids are really, really afraid of death. And I remember being a kid and thinking about death a lot and being worried about it. And the idea of of getting to live forever. To be unable to die. Yeah. That that for me was the kicker. Horrifying. (laughs) It is. I remember as a kid actually thinking a lot about this because I would wonder if they're incapable of dying, if like something in them, like physically, like the matter of their body cannot break down, then does that mean that even at the end of the world, you know, when like the earth explodes, are they just going to be floating around in space? That (laughs) is the most hideous image imaginable. Because even if they're not eating, you know, like they don't even they don't need anything to survive. I I just had this horrifying image of the tux and that toad floating around in black emptiness. (laughs) The poor toad. I know. So that that I think is what makes this book so interesting. And, And Winnie also part of her journey in the book is that she learns to break rules because she's been a kid who's been in this very confined household she's the only kid at one point there's a great line where she says that she would like a new name that isn't worn out from being called so much and Mm -hmm. so you get the image of this girl who's just being so closely watched by her family all the time and they love her you know and she loves them it's not necessarily a hostile dynamic but it's just she's overprotected and over the course of the book she learns kind of how to break out of that and at one point towards the end of the book she's thinking about how she feels a little bit anxious and guilty about breaking into the jail and pretending to be may and her natalie babbitt says beneath her excitement she was thick with guilt for the second time in three short days though they seemed too many more than that she was about to do something which she knew would be forbidden she didn't have to ask winnie had her own strong sense of rightness and that own strong sense of rightness that comes out is this I mean, that's what makes this book so interesting, because as, mm-hmm. as a child reading it, you can see yourself in Winnie and can ask yourself, would I make the same choices that she did? And also the way that the book, I remember when I was a kid, I would spend a lot of time 
kind of thinking about and stressed out about these essential questions. I think when you're a kid, you don't realize yet what it means that there are questions that you can never know the answer to. Mm -hmm. And so I would drive myself a little crazy sometimes wanting to know the answers to these questions that now as an adult, I can kind of accept as I'll never know the answer to that. And by that, I mean questions that like a lot of times religion tries to answer, which is like, how is the world created? Why am I here? Is there a higher power? And this is a a novel that engages with a lot of those questions. Like at one point, Mm -hmm. Jesse says that Pa thinks that the well was left over from some other plan for the way the world should be, some plan that didn't work out too good, and so everything changed. And based, I just love that idea that I love like that this too. one world was created by whoever created it, God or something else. And then he wiped all of that clean. He was like, never mind, that's no good. But he forgot to erase that one well, and that's like Ugh. this remnant. Oh, it's just so interesting. It's a terrific idea. And I mean, uh, what a way to explain it. That's one of the reasons why I think Winnie is so intrigued by the Tucks, even though, of course, she's originally afraid of being kidnapped by them, is that these are people who talk to her about these really important and interesting questions that don't get discussed at home, you know? And so no one had talked no one had talked to her about things like this before. And you can tell that she's really, really, really intrigued by it. So when I was reading about Tuck Everlasting online, I found this website called Dogo Books, which has a bunch of book reviews that are written by kids. And it was really, really fun to read through the different reviews of Tuck Everlasting and see what kids had to say. And most kids seemed to like it. It had like a pretty high average. So they could rate the book out of five stars and it had a pretty high average, like four stars, I think. And a lot of kids loved it. And then there was a fair number of kids who said that they thought it was boring or that it was hard to understand, which I think, to be fair, if you are too young to read this book, you would find the figurative language a bit of super daunting. Yeah. So uh, but this was a five star review that I thought was super cute. And the the kid's username was Raindrop 07. (laughs) And he or she said, imagine if you ran away into the forest stumbled upon a boy it's really important that you know that she spelled stumbled as stubbled like stubbled what grows on your body after (laughs) you haven't shaved in a while um (laughs) all right so imagine if you run away into the forest stumbled upon a boy drinking from a spring in a tree were whisked away on a horse to a homely cottage on a lake (laughs) and then told that the family you were staying with lived forever you would be shocked stunned surprised all that well Winnie Foster sure was. When she stumbled upon Jesse Tuck in the forest, she was brought back to his family's house. It took her a while to believe that they were telling the truth. The Tucks could live forever. This is a beautiful, loving, sad story about family, courage, friendship, and happiness. I loved reading it. Smiley face. Five stars. Oh, wow. And I wish that I knew how to contact Raindrop07 because I feel like she'd be a great a great guest to have on the podcast. <laughs> uh, one, you would be shocked, stunned, surprised, all that. <laughs> I also love that she used the word homely. Yes, that was terrific. And we can also talk, the cottage that the Tucks live in is divine. I want to live uh, there so badly. Cottage core, just the absolute, it's a vision. 
After rereading this book now, I have a new theory about um, Taylor Swift's folklore and Evermore albums, <laughs> <laughs> which is that she read Tuck Everlasting. I don't know if you guys have seen her her recent Grammy performance, but I'm pretty sure she's performing out of the Tuck's cabin because it's like this delightful, beautiful, homely little cottage. And it also, like folklore and Evermore, is a wonderful combination of beautiful and sad I think you mean beautiful, loving, sad. Yes. And about family, courage, friendship, and happiness. That's true. I mean, there is literally a song in Evermore called Happiness. So So jot that down. Yeah, I think we're on to something. We did it! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Here's another... This is a four-star review I liked. The kid's username was G... C-A-D-W-1668. So they said, do you like a good fiction book with lots of suspension? If you answered yes, then Talk Everlasting by, colon, Natalie Babbitt is the book for you. One reason that I like this book is because it is very descriptive and it is easy to put a picture in your mind. Another reason is because there are many characters and each one has their own personality. And then asterisk, 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 spoiler alert in all caps. My favorite part was when May, Miles, and Jesse kidnapped Winnie and took her to their house so that she would not tell anybody their secret. That is so thoughtful to put in a spoiler alert for something that happens in, like, chapter three. I know. About a book that was published in 1975, I think. Like, what a sweet idea. The kidnapping is so early on. I know. Yes. So I really liked that this, that this kid appreciated Natalie Babbitt's descriptive language. Yes, so well said. It's easy to put a picture in your mind. Mm, Very good. And then there was another. This is a shorter review. It was one star. So important to note that not all kids love this book. Um, Like I said, I think that the, especially if you're a little too young, the some of the language might be a little hard to access. But this kid's username, BJ Mo, said, I didn't really like this book because I thought that this book wasn't really interesting and that the Tux family drinks this spring water to get everlasting life. And I thought it was silly to be able to drink something, then talk about this thing. <laughs> One star. <laughs> Which I think I'm going to start, I'm going to start saying that when, um, <laughs> when COVID is over and I'm back at bars and breweries again, if a man comes up to me and starts trying to talk to me about craft beer and IPAs, I'm just going to hit him with, I think it's silly to be able to drink something and then talk about this thing. <laughs> One star. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta hit him with that one star. Um, what a terrific reason. Uh, I What? Like, I'm still not fully sure I get where uh, BJ Mo is going with that. No, I mean, I guess... Like, did he think they were just too... Was he just, like, talk about something else? Like, is that what his critique is? Like, <laughs> I think so. I think he's like, we get it. You <laughs> yeah. can drink water. <laughs> like, that's not really what it was about. No. Oh, my gosh. I think something was lost fundamentally in translation for BJ Mo. But um, thank you for giving us the ultimate comeback. Truly a gift. Terry, can you read the next one? I would love to from Jaden6924. I gave this book two stars because I'm not really into this book. It is about a girl named Winnie who is not happy about life, even though she isn't that poor. Her house is really nice. She isn't happy because she's forced to stay in a forest and and talks to a frog. Winnie escapes and meets the Tux. Then the man in the yellow suit tells Winnie's family and constable that the Tux kidnapped Winnie. 
Maytuck hits the man in the yellow suit with a shotgun, goes to jail, breaks out, and makes Winnie dress as May and gave Winnie the spring water. She didn't drink the spring water, but she poured it on the frog. I can't relate to this book, and I didn't really like it that much. <laughs> Two stars. It's also funny, too, because she doesn't make Winnie do anything. Winnie volunteers. Exactly. <laughs> Jaden6924 makes a good point. Winnie does complain a lot for someone who lives in a nice house. And yeah, for someone money. who is not that poor. Yeah, she is. In Tree Gap, Winnie is the 1%. And yeah, that's fair. Maybe she should suck it up. <laughs> uh, I think that maybe there is some confusion about her living situation. Uh, she isn't happy because she's forced to stay in a forest. I think that that's sort of not <laughs> correct. I think that he's off there. And I don't think that she's unhappy because she talks to the frog. I think more of a chicken egg situation. I think that she talks to the frog because she is unhappy. But again, I was not there. I agree. I agree. I like the implication, though, that if one is forced to stay in a forest and talk to frogs, that one will not be happy. Right, because that actually would be my preferred existence. Yeah, I know. Like, what? Come on, Winnie. <laughs> Winnie in Jaden 6924's version of the book. I love that he can't relate to this. <laughs> I think that's great. I mean, that's a terrific reason to not like a book. That's like a fine reasoning. I just, <laughs> I don't think anyone was asking you to, Jaden. I think you were going to need to suspend disbelief before you began reading this book. But yeah, he was, he was not having, he didn't have time for the nonsense. He said, I can't relate to this book. And I didn't really like it that much. <laughs> yeah, the next review is by Logan Herb. That's his or her username, and they say, I gave this book a three star because it wasn't interesting to me. The connection I made with this book is that I have a tight schedule and so does she. <laughs> this book is about a family who drank from everlast everlasting water. So now they are everlasting. Three stars. Why isn't that on the back of the book? <laughs> I know, right? The back of the book has a review from Harper's that says, probably the best work of our best children's novelist. But I really See, think that one didn't make me laugh nearly as much. No. I just love also the idea that um, that Winnie has a tight schedule. I don't think she does. I think, I think that's kind of the problem. Yeah, I think she's a little bored, actually. She's like, watch the toad at 2 p.m. Be hot and irritable, even though I'm not that poor. Watch the toad again. <laughs> Get kidnapped. <laughs> Go fishing. More toad. <laughs> I mean, she gets a lot done, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot does happen over the course of these three days, but I just love the implication that Winnie is like one of these overscheduled kids who has like <laughs> karate. Basketball practice. Yeah, and like Spanish club and chess swim lessons. lessons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. And then in the middle of all that, she has, she has to go and get kidnapped by this everlasting family. <laughs> also, I love that the water itself is everlasting. Like, that's the <laughs> everlasting water. <laughs> but I really oh have um, saved the best review for last. This one killed me. I love it so much. So this review is from the username, yeah, underscore, I'm Ian. And he said, 
This book is about a girl meeting a family who got immortality from drinking spring water. Someone else this girl meets is a man in yellow who wants to market the spring water for a fortune. This is a unique and original story that I have never read anything like before. The book reminds me of a family that I thought was magic. They moved into my neighborhood and they... (laughs) And they had a semi-truck full of little Debbie treats and snacks. (laughs) He would always let my brother and I have some if we wanted it. (laughs) Three stars. (laughs) Oh, man. See, I get it now. If this, uh, if Jaden6924 had had this experience, then he would have been able to relate to the book. The problem is that he never had a neighbor with a um, a semi-truck full of little Debbie treats and snacks. And if which did, is how, yeah, I'm Ian process this. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, maybe, maybe he did have a neighbor with a semi-truck full of little Debbie treats and snacks, but the neighbor wouldn't always let him and his brother have some if we wanted it. <laughs> I know that, like, the most logical explanation for this is that he was neighbors with a trucker who transported <laughs> little Debbie treats and snacks, but I really like to imagine that his neighbor just loved little Debbie treats and snacks so much that he had a semi truck full of them in the in the driveway. I mean that's what he needed for storage. If you're gonna have if you're gonna be able to have on you the optimal amount of little Debbie treats and snacks, you damn well better have a semi. Amazing. Oh, and I love that there's no there's no like real conclusion to this. He doesn't bring it back to the book. He's just fully he's fully reminiscing by the time it's over. Yeah. <laughs> like he is in another world. He is back in that neighbor's semi-truck eating little Debbie treats and snacks with his brother. Okay, wait, quick. Would you rather, would you rather have everlasting water, not like water that gives you everlasting life, just everlasting water, whatever that is, or a semi-truck filled with little Debbie treats and snacks that you and your brother can have some from whenever you would like? I mean, I feel like the obvious answer is the semi-truck. Yeah, that's right. You were right. (laughs) I mean, I am interested in what everlasting water is. Does that mean I never have to refill my water bottle? Because that's actually... I think so. That actually is really appealing. I know. Oh, my God. That could, like, really change my life. I mean, to be fair, having a semi-truck full of Little Debbie treats and snacks would also change my life. (laughs) but just in profoundly different ways. That's true. Uh, Please let us know what you think everlasting water is, and would you rather have that, whatever it is, or, I'm going to say the whole phrase again, a semi-truck full full with, not filled with, full with Little Debbie Treats and Snacks. Yes. (laughs) These are the important questions. But, you know, I got to say, like, as a teacher, that's a terrific connection to make. I would probably also think my neighbor were magic. I mean, what a good, what a great tie-in, you know, A+. plus. I love that. That's, you know what that is, you guys? That's called a text-to-self connection. And that kid is a good reader. Yeah, I mean, good job. He is. And I, yeah, I, I think he, I think he should write book reviews for a major publication. Yeah, I mean, this so much better than whatever. I mean, come on. I The New Yorker, please. Mm. I, what did Yeah, I'm Ian have to say about it? <laughs> That's my question. So there is a fair bit of critical academic writing about Tuck Everlasting, more so than some of the other books that we've read for this podcast. I found this academic text by a man called Peter C. Kunz, who wrote 
Winnie the Conservationist, Talk Everlasting, Ecofeminism, and Children's Literature, and this was published in 2014. And one of the things that this text talked about was the way that the novel revises what we think of as a traditional boy's adventure story. So something like Peter Pan or even Huck Finn, where these narratives that have kind of an exploratory and colonialist lens to them. And instead, Tuck Everlasting talks about these things, but focuses more on cooperation between Winnie and the Tucks and um, how they survive this threat imposed by capitalism, by the man in the yellow suit, through mutual respect and affection and kindness towards each other and resisting exploitation and protection of the woods, which I think is really interesting, too, because the woods is kind of this double-edged sword. It's this beloved place, and it's described in this really ethereal way. And it also is the source of what you could think of as like this evil spring you know this this curse so much pain for Mm -hmm. this family and you can also think of this book as a kind of buildings roman which is a genre of novel that deals with a person's coming of age and so huckleberry finn is a really classic example of that and while that genre like most genres of western literature has been really male-centric Tuck Everlasting flips that on its head a little bit, and instead of having a young male protagonist who realizes his ability to strike out on his own and be independent, Tuck Everlasting instead shows a young girl's obligations to her community and um, what she can do to benefit other people and to protect the natural world. So there's a lot going on in this article that I thought was super interesting, but I think the ways in which this novel deals with gender is really interesting. The way that the Tuck family acts as kind of a a foil to the capitalist threat of the man in the yellow suit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so one other interesting thing that this article explores is how the man in the yellow suit is kind of this patriarchal threat who sees both Winnie and the woods as something to be exploited. They write, this proposal demonstrates two boldly patriarchal presumptions on the man in the yellow suit's part. First, it reduces the wood and Winnie to objects with exchange value. Second, the knowledge the man possesses about Winnie, he feels, entitles him to engage in the exchange. What he knows becomes the source of his power over the fosters. The man in the yellow suit has no name because he personifies a patriarchal and imperialist logic that feminizes nature and therefore perceives it as vulnerable, available, and controllable. Yeah. One other way in which the novel... Well, actually, so I had an interesting thought about this, too, while I was reading this article. The idea of Tuck Everlasting being an environmentalist text is also kind of complicated by the fact that at the end of the book, the woods have been basically bulldozed and have been developed. And I don't know, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this, Terry. I I read that as... And Angus Tuck even asks some people, like, there used to be a freshwater spring in those woods, and basically no one knows what he's talking about. So I think the implication is that the spring has somehow been destroyed by Mm -hmm. this this development. And in that way, the development is, is both evil because it's destroyed this kind of sacred, beautiful place in this very powerful place, but it's also eliminated the threat of the spring water. Yeah, I mean, I sort of felt of it as sort of, I, I don't know, almost not being dissimilar to the notion of the wheel 
and death, you know, the idea that this place has followed some progression in its life, just the way Winnie does and all living things do. And that it's whether or not you consider the development as being beneficial because it destroyed the spring or tragic because it destroyed the wood, that it just is. It's its place in the wheel and its development. So I don't know how well that would tie in with the notion of it being a, an ecocentric text, but that's sort of how I read it. I don't know. Mm. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, that, I didn't think about that, but that's a really interesting point, the idea of the development being a manifestation of, of the wheel and this this natural progression of the world. That things grow and change right, in all ways, all the time, as they're intended to. Unless you're the toad. Unless you're the toad. The toad floating through space for all eternity. Yeah, and I think, actually, this kind of ties into the movie issue. So there's a couple Tuck Everlasting films. One of them came out in the 80s. One of them came out in 2002. I have not seen the one in the 80s, but I have seen the one in 2002. It is, I saw it as a kid and I really didn't like it because it was very different than the book. And I rewatched it a couple nights ago because I was like, well, you know, maybe I judged it too quickly. And I didn't. I don't like it at all. <laughs> um, it's a Disney film starring Alexis Bledel, Jonathan Jackson, Sissy Spacek, and some other people. And it, I have several issues with it, one of which is it just changed the pl- changes the plot of the book a lot, which mm-hmm. is a bold move when you're given something perfect. <laughs> God, what chutzpah. <laughs> you remember, this was a long time ago when that elderly woman revised, like tried to like clean up a fresco yes, in an yes. Italian church. And painted over it and resulted in the um, the like uh, Christ monkey hybrid. Yep, yep. That's... I do. The 2002 version of Tuck Everlasting is like the Christ monkey hybrid. Yeah, so the film got mixed reviews. It has a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is a little too high. Although I will say that if you haven't read Tuck Everlasting, you probably will be more generous towards the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But because I'm comparing it to the book, I'm even more outraged by it. Basically, for those of you who haven't seen it, they age up Winnie a lot. So she's played by Alexis Bledel, who at the time I think was 20, which is basically twice as old as she's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And she's supposed to be a teenager close to Jesse's age, and they fall She's in- like 15 or 16. Yeah, yeah. And so they fall in love, have a little romance over the summer. Um, the plot is very different. She stays with the Tucks for weeks. Um, she doesn't... It takes her a long time to find out about their secret, which to me just creates like a big plot hole because... Why is she? Staying? Why would they hang out with her? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like what? I mean, I get that Jesse is hot, but honestly, Jesse in the book is described as more attractive than um, John- Jonathan Jackson. Just seems like doesn't step up to the plate. No, I mean, I, I don't want to insult the man, but <laughs> he's just goofy. Like, I think that's what bothers me the most about the movie is that it's just corny, and this book is yeah. not corny. Like. It's just not. And the movie is. And and the book thinks so highly of its audience. You yeah. Know? It's a silly movie. I think it, it doesn't. It, it's given this incredible source material and it kind of squanders it. I understand why they did it, because in some ways it raises the stakes to have Winnie and Jesse in love with each other, because that makes her choice more difficult. Um, but she is in love with Jesse in yeah. the book. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, obviously it's a it's a crush. She's not yeah. in love with him. But, you know, she's very she's very taken with him. Mm-hmm. And um, and his proposal that she wait six years, you know, and mm-hmm. then join him and they be married is, I don't know, still presents her with an interesting choice. Yeah. I mean, I remember being a kid and reading that and being like, that's a good those are those are two good options you've got there. Yeah. <laughs> like, Both of those are great. <laughs> So I don't know which one you pick, but yeah, the movie is weird. It also plays into, I think in even, I think in more overt ways, even than the book does, some kind of problematic tropes about, well, this book and movie present white people as the natural caretakers of land that they mm. stole. And so, yes, that's one problem that I think the book doesn't of course, really deal with that well. And that's something that happens a lot in American literature and Western literature is this idea of the wilderness as being pure and untouched, when really what they mean is that there aren't any other white people there and there aren't actually any other people there at all, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. which isn't really the case. We know that Native people and Indigenous people were driven from these lands. And so... Mm -hmm. And that's particularly a trope that comes up in a lot of literature and films about Appalachia. And I don't think that you can say that Tuck Everlasting, the book, is specifically set in Appalachia. I think the setting is too vague to really discern that. But the movie is definitely supposed to be set in Appalachia. It doesn't say that, but you can tell by viewing it. You can it. look outside. Yeah. And, um, and the way that it uses music. Um, the Tucks are, have this weird... Scottish accent, which is... Checks out. Yeah, which is kind of a stereotype um, and a a trope about Appalachia that it's settled by Scotch-Irish people who settled there because it reminded them of home, which isn't true, but is kind of a a mythology about the region that we tend to believe. And also really buys into this problematic and actually, frankly, offensive stereotype about Appalachia that it's this region that's frozen in time. And mm-hmm. that the Tucks are kind of the manifestation of this region yeah. being frozen in time in their little ramshackle cottage. And they're, they don't have any money, but they're happy and they yeah. have a connection with nature. And this kind of kind of presenting these Scotch-Irish white people who are settlers as natives to this land, which they are mm-hmm. not. And so that's something kind of troubling that's, that's going on in the film version of Tuck Everlasting. That's a really good point. Thank you. So, Terry, what rating would you give this book? I thought that this book was an absolute treasure. I have no nostalgic connection to it. I did not read it in childhood. My first time reading it was as an adult, and I thought it was tremendous, and I give this book 10 out of 10 immortal toads. Mm, I'm so glad to hear it, because I was going to have to stop being friends with you if you didn't love this book. But of course, (laughs) and I don't blame you. I also give this book 10 out of 10 Immortal Toads. I love it so much. And if you all have thoughts, opinions, hot takes on Tuck Everlasting, you can find our show on Twitter and Instagram at reading underscore recess. And you can email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. To all you little Debbie fanatics out there, stay reading.